from the uh, Things Aren't Always As They Appear file comes the following story. It says a local United Way uh, office realized that it had never received a donation from the town's most successful lawyer. And uh, the woman in charge of contributions called the lawyer to persuade him to contribute. She says on the phone call, Our research shows that out of a yearly income of at least $500,000, that you have not given a penny to charity. Wouldn't you like to give back to the community in some way? The lawyer mauled this over for a moment, then replied, First, did your research also show that my mother is dying after a long illness and that her medical bills are several times her annual income? Embarrassed, the United Way rep mumbled, um, well, no. And the lawyer continued, did, did your research also show that my brother, a disabled veteran, is blind and confined to a wheelchair? Embarrassed, the United Way rep mumbled again, though, and he continued. It says the lawyer interrupted again and said, oh, or that my sister's husband died in a traffic accident, leaving her penniless and with three children? The, you, the humiliated United Way rep, completely beaten, simply said, I'm sorry, I had no idea. On a roll at this time, the lawyer cut her off once again and said, So, if I haven't given any of them any money, what makes you think I'd give some to you? <laughs> so, what is the point? The point is it's easy to come up with a wrong conclusion if one's not open to the uh, truth or not careful to examine the facts. And in our ongoing study of the book of Acts, uh, we've come across a large group of folks who were guilty of making such a mistake. They had refused to examine the facts or the evidence, objective evidence, as to the true identity of Jesus Christ. And as a result, they wrongly concluded him to be a mere man, only claiming to be God. And their erroneous conclusion led them, because of rage and anger, to turn him over to their most hated enemies, the Romans, for his execution upon a cross. And Peter, in his first sermon, laid out a very convincing argument that we've been looking at in detail the last couple of times that we've been together, trying to convince them or show them the error of their ways, that they had not taken a look at the objective evidence that God had laid out for them as to the identity of Jesus Christ. Who is he? And is he who he claimed to be, the Savior of the world? So if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 2, where we see in Acts 2, verses 37 through 41 we see the response to this sermon and the evidence that was laid out, and we will also address the single most important question that anyone can ask of him or herself during a, during a lifetime, and that's the question, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? In Acts chapter 2, the response or the conclusion of the sermon, we find these words. Now, when they heard... When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. As I mentioned, the single most important question that any of us can ask of ourselves is, What must I do to be saved? Unfortunately, many of us don't really understand the context of that, or it may be a foreign question in many ways, because the whole idea of being saved leads to the question, saved from what? And, uh, and it's not something that we're familiar with in our culture. 
more would be more familiar with the question, what do I have to do to make sure that when I die that I go to heaven? And that would be a question that every one of us at some point or another would ask of ourselves because any of us who think of those things, or think of the inevitability of death or have been to a funeral, have lost a loved one, so to speak, family member, whatever, the question is, how do we know for sure where that person has gone? What happens to a person after they die? How do we know when we go to a funeral and we hear, well, you know, uh, this person or that person, they lived this way, that way, they went to this church or that church. How do we really know with any certainty, how do we know if there are any guarantees as to where that person actually goes the moment that they die? The question, what must I do to be saved, is a relevant question and a very important question. And in context, I'm going to explain what that means in a second. But until we get to that point, we need to recognize that a wrong answer to the question, no matter how correct a person's beliefs may be in other areas, is a path to eternal tragedy. Knowing how vitally important a correct answer is to this, it should come as no surprise that Satan, who is the great deceiver, has done his best work, so to speak, in this particular area of confusing people as to what a person needs to, be, what a person needs to do to be right with God. How is it that we can be sure of our destiny after we leave this life and enter into the next? And what I want to share with you as an introduction to our time together is some very popular, and I want to emphasize this as, 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 uh, as rigidly or strongly as I can, they're very popular, but they're wrong views. And what I find fascinating about them is the views that we're going to look at here are all views that have their roots in truth. And the truth of the matter is, is that the Bible is truth. Jesus said in, Acts 7, uh, in John 17... He said that, you know, Father, he prayed for his believers, those who would come after him, who would trust in him and believe in him. Father, sanctify them in truth, for thy spirit is truth. The word of God is truth. And the reality is, is that what Satan has always done since the very beginning is try to take the truth and manipulate the truth so that it renders truth basically uh, um, fruitless, so to speak. If you, think, if you think for a moment with me about the, the, uh, the sin of Adam and Eve, the first sin of man that led sin into the world. Through Adam, one man, through his sin, sin entered into the world and, and through sin comes death. But the reality of what happened was God had told them there were certain things they could do and certain things that they couldn't do. And what Satan did from the very beginning is he took the words of God and he manipulated them or twisted them so that he called into question the reliability and the trustworthiness of what God had said. In fact, if you recall, he said this, Surely you won't die. I mean, I, I, he couldn't have meant that when he said, you can enjoy everything else but this tree, this, uh, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat from this one tree. That doesn't make much sense, does it? Because after all, he wants you to enjoy everything. Why would he restrict that to this and say, you can't eat that? And then not only that, not only does that make, not make sense, but to say that if you eat of it, you will die? Well, that doesn't make any sense. And so he calls into question the truth and the reliability of the Word of God. That has always been his method, and it always will be his method. In fact, if you recall the, the temptation of, of Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4, he manipulated or misquoted Scripture in his temptation as he tempted, attempted to tempt Jesus Christ. And so, as we look at this, these are very popular but wrong views, and all of them are based upon some truth. And that's what makes them so dangerous. The first view, and, and you know, in some of these terms you may not be familiar with, but you're, you're going to, as, as I describe them, you'll go, oh, I know somebody who believes that. And so a legalist, for example, is a person who would argue in James chapter 2, verse 21, for example, it says, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? 
And so the argument is, wasn't Abraham justified or made right with God because he offered, offered his son Isaac on the altar? And the answer is, that has nothing to do with the context in which we find that particular phrase, in, in this particular verse. It had to do with the fact that a redeemed life, a person who has put their faith and trust in Christ, a person who has believed God at his, and taken him at his word, there should be evidence in our life to indicate that what we say we believe is now lived out. And so in James, for example, it says, faith without works is dead. Now, to take that and argue that it's works or following the law or trying to do what we're told to do, thou shalt not lie, I didn't lie, thou shalt not steal, I didn't steal, thou shalt not, and try to keep track of all the things that God says we're not supposed to do and believe somehow that that'll lead us into a right relationship with God that we'll find forgiveness by doing that is just a lie and there's no truth to it from Scripture. In fact, it was Paul who wrote to Rome, in Romans 4, he said this, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. God. He says, for what does the scripture say? Again, the truth of the word of God. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God. Paul emphatically rejects any idea of salvation through keeping the law in Romans 3.20 where he says, by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in God's sight. The point of the matter is this. It is impossible for any of us to keep the laws of God we will always fail. Thou shalt not lie. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt honor God and keep Him first. Thou shalt honor your father and your mother. Thou shalt not covet your neighbor's goods. You know, the Ten Commandments are just ten of six hundred and some commandments that are found through Scripture. We can't keep those. It's impossible to keep them. And the reason it's impossible is this. Because we are all born into the world with a sin nature. Doing things according to a list of works to do will not eradicate the root problem of sin nature in our heart. So the Bible says that by no works of the law shall any of us be justified. The legalist says, you know what, I can somehow or another do the right thing and that will make me uh, right before God or that will get me forgiveness from God. And the Bible says, no, it won't. In fact, the whole purpose of God's laws was to be a tutor or teacher, according to Galatians, that lead us to Jesus Christ. The more we fail, the more we realize we can't do it ourselves. And then we cry out to God, God, help me, how are we going to do this? Because I'm in deep trouble. Now, the moralist is a person, and many of us have talked to or, or, or been around people, and some of us may even be in that position today that thinks, you know what? As long as I do more good things than bad things, God grades on a curve, and I'll be okay. I mean, I can remember a time in my life where I thought that. I mean, think about it. All of life is that way. As long as I get more hits than make outs, I'll be okay. In fact, in Major League Baseball, as long as I only get three hits out of every ten times a bat, <laughs> you know, I'm making $20 million a year. So, you know, the bar drops a little bit, you know what I mean? The standard isn't the same. So it's like, wow, you know, everything. It's like, hey, you know, as long as I get seven out of ten right in school, at 70%, I'm going to pass. And so the mentality we carry into our relationship with God, saying that, hey, as long as I'm doing more good things than bad things, then I'm in good shape. But the problem with that thinking is who determines what's good and who determines what's not. A, a silly illustration I was thinking about the other day. It was like, it would be like my wife spending the day cooking me. Man, I mean, she's in the kitchen. She's cooking this great meal. I come home and, man, the, can, you know, the candles are lit. The dinner is, the table's set. Everything's there. And then she pulls out of the oven everything I hate. Tuna noodle casserole. You know, you know, whatever, you know split pea soup. 
You know, it's like, you know, here's, an, here's your first course. Oh, this is... And then for her to say, but, but, but this is a good thing. Well, who's to determine that? Well, if I'm the one to determine it, then no matter what the efforts are, it just isn't good. See, God says the same about you and I. Chuck, your good things... Let me just tell you what your good things are. All your works of righteousness and all the good stuff you try to do, to me, they're like filthy rags. There are no good things. Now, what's interesting is, you know, that, that this same moralist will say, well, you know what, but God, you know, he, he judges us based on our deeds. Well, he does. But in the context, he judges us based on our deeds after coming to faith in Christ. And the judgment seat is not the great white throne judgment of Christ, but it's the Bema seat judgment of Christ for the purpose of rewarding those who have been faithful servants of His. Our works are not what determines what finds forgiveness in the eyes of God. In fact, people that will say that, they'll ignore verses like, for it's by grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourself. It's a gift from God so that no one can boast. It has nothing to do with its works. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And on and on scripture goes. Now the other view that's popular but extremely wrong, as all of these are, is what we would call a universalist. And the per- this is a person that says, hey, God is a God of love. God is going to forgive everybody. Everybody gets a free ride to heaven. And that's just the way it's going to be. Because for me to believe anything other than that is a very scary proposition. But the reality of that is that, you know what? And then they'll take a verse and they'll say something like, well, so then as through one transgression, Romans 5.18, there resulted condemnation to all men, even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. And they'll take that and distort it. I mean, we'll see, <coughs> excuse me, just as through Adam we're all sinners, uh, through Jesus Christ, we're all forgiven. But that's not what the Bible teaches at all. And in fact, Jesus is the one who said he ignores, in Matthew 7, 13, he says, to enter by the, we're to enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and many are those who enter by it. God will forgive everybody. And I can't believe, how can a God of love send anybody to hell? Now, the question I would ask you to ask a person, because you may have a friend or family member who believes this, and I would ask you to ask them this. How do you know that God is a God of love. How do we know that? Isn't it amazing how people jump on, hey, well, we all know, if we know, if we know nothing else about God, we know that God is a God of love. Well, how do you know that? And if they say, well, you know, the Bible tells us that. I say, great. Well, let's go to the Bible as a source because not only does the Bible tell us that God is, and it doesn't say, by the way, that God is a God of love. It says God is love. And not only that, but it also says that God is holy and God is just and God cannot lie. He cannot deceive us. And if he says that there is a heaven and that there is a hell and that some will go to heaven and some will go to hell, some will be forgiven and some will be condemned, then we need to look at the totality of the Bible and decide why is it that we like to pick and choose the things that we're comfortable with. I have a friend that I'm discipling and his, his, uh, his mother and father are involved in a ministry role in a denominational church that does not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture. 
In other words, they pick and choose what feels good to them out of the Bible, and then they pick and choose what they think they need to do to get people to come to that particular church, and then they combine it all together and make everybody feel good about it. So he got into the first conversation with them. I think it was at Thanksgiving. And he called me and he said, Man, I said, what a frustrating day I had. I said, Why? He goes, Man, because I was talking to my mom. And I was like, She's like, Well, you know, and, and they don't believe, you know, homosexuality is a sin, for example. And so that came up in a conversation. And, this, and I said, Well, but what do they believe? Well, they believe that God is love. I said, Well, you know what? Here's what you need to ask. Where, where, do, you, where do you find that in the Bible? Well, isn't it interesting? In 1 Corinthians 13, it talks about, you know, the love of God. This is God's love. This is the description of God's love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered, and it goes on and on. I said, now, ask her if she believes that. Well, yeah, she does. Now, ask her to read 1 Corinthians 6 and 7 about sexual immorality and what God calls a sin and what is wrong and what is right. How in the world can you say you believe 1 Corinthians 13 but not 1 Corinthians 6 and 7? I mean, does anybody see the illogic or, or the illogical pattern that's developing here? And we're all guilty of it, and we all got to be careful about it because the bottom line is we all pick and choose the things that, you know, you know and it's usually this I believe the things I'm not guilty of. But the things that I'm guilty of, you know, there's got to be a little bit of leeway there. But the universalist, you know, you go back to him and say, well, how do you know God is a God of love? God is love? Well, God is love because the Bible says so, but the Bible also says God is just. Now, the other question is, I can't believe that God would send someone to hell. I would say, hey, I absolutely agree with you. God doesn't send anybody to hell. People choose to go there on their own. Because people either choose to receive God's plan of forgiveness or they'll reject God's plan of forgiveness, and the consequence of the rejection is they will ultimately end up separated from God for all of eternity. Does God send them there? No. They choose to go there. Interesting. The ritualist is a person who believes that, man, you know what? Well, as long as I'm baptized, as long as I you know, receive certain sacraments that maybe our church promotes, and as long as I'm, I'm doing those types of things, you know, for the Jews it was as long as we we're circumcised, then God will forgive us. There were always things that were going on that if we did those things, that somehow we'll find forgiveness with God. But the reality of what the Bible clearly teaches is, with the heart man believes, resulting in righteousness. And with his mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So the summation of everything that we see here, sadly, all of these views are held by literally thousands and thousands of people. And it shows that any position can be proven from the Bible if you take that position or that verse and you take it out of context and you make it say what you want it to say. Unlike those who promote such lies, the Apostle Peter in this first sermon is telling him the truth. And he tells us the truth as well as he answers the question, what must we do to be saved? Number one, you'll notice, going back to Acts chapter 2, look at verse 37. First we notice that they were convicted of sin. It is, and, and, and we need to be very clear about this, it is not possible to be forgiven by God until we first realize that we are guilty of sin. 
We cannot be forgiven by God until we realize that we are guilty as He charges of sin. Why would any of us seek to be forgiven by anybody if we thought that we were not guilty? Do you follow the simple logic of that? Why would any of us go to someone and ask for forgiveness unless we knew that we were guilty? Now, we've all in our relationships play the game. It's kind of like, you know, if anybody's been married long enough, you play the game at some point in time in your relationship where it's like, I know my wife's upset with me. I know I didn't do anything wrong. But I think, it's, I think I just need to ask her to forgive me anyway. Because it's pretty obvious she thinks I did something wrong. I don't even know what it is. And even if she tells me what it is, I don't agree with her anyway. So I'll just ask her to forgive me and then we'll just move on. How many of you ever played that game? Amen. Preach your brother. All right. Well, see, the problem with that is it's like... It's, it, you know, and what happened, you never really resolve the root issues. It's like, you know, you go, well, I'm sorry. Now, and now, here's what you need to do from now on. And it, and it goes both ways, sometimes. <laughs> Not very often. <laughs> Once every decade. Okay. But, but what you need to do next time is, if someone says, you know, I'm sorry. Ask them, for what? See, we, we, I mean, we do that with our children when they were younger, growing up. It's like, I'm sorry. For what? And it's amazing how reluctant a person is to confess their sin. What are you sorry for? What? You know, uh, for, you know, for coloring on the wall. Okay. But, you know, until that person confesses that, do they really understand what it is that they did? So we need to make sure that as we, quote, confess our sin or seek forgiveness, that we know what it is that we're guilty of. And the bottom line is, is that we cannot seek God's forgiveness until we clearly understand what it is that God says He has against us. So the first step toward reconciliation with God is to recognize our guilt. But to do so, we must look. We must hear the truth. You know, the Bible says in Romans that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. The only way that you and I know that we're guilty is because God's Word declares that we are. For example, there, were, you know, there was a time in my life I didn't know that I was born into the world a sinner, as God says, or separated from God, until someone explained to me that it was through Adam's sin that that it was through his sin that sin entered into the world and through sin came death. And the reason that you and I die physically is because we're all born into the world, alienated from God. The reason you and I can't keep God's commandments is that we are alienated from God. The reason that the first thing that comes out of a kid's mouth is no or a disobedient act. It's not because they're taught that. And it always cracks me up when people say, well, my kid, you know, until they went to school, they never learned any of that stuff. Hey, you know what? Your kid never had to go to school to learn to say the first thing that came out of their mouth when you wanted them to do something they didn't want to do was, No! No! Nuh. Eat some more. Nuh. Who taught them that? I mean, who taught them to knock their food off their, their uh, high chair? I mean, who taught them that? Nobody taught them that. It's sin nature. It is in the heart of man. We're rebellious against God. But until we know that from the Word of God, we're not really sure what the root problem is. You know, we try to figure it out. Oh, it's, you know, it's, that keep them away from certain people. That may be a good idea, but you know what? That's not the root problem. In fact, you know what? Their parents are telling their kid to stay away from your kid. 
So, you know, you got to hear. Hear what? Hear the truth of the Word of God. Now, what have they heard up to this point? And we need to lead up to this because you're going to see why they responded the way that they did. Here's what they had heard so far. They had heard that the miracles that were performed, that Jesus performed, were performed by the power of God. They had heard that God had attested or basically gave a stamp of approval that Jesus Christ was the Savior and is the Savior of the world. The Old Testament had told them that the things that the Savior would do would be these types of things. We went into great detail. You know, he raised people from the dead. He opened the eyes of the blind. He opened the ears of the deaf. The things that he did attested to the world objective evidence that this is truly the Savior, the Savior of the world. That is his true identity. So it was performed by the, the God's power. His death on the cross was planned by God. Nobody took Jesus' life from him. He came that he laid it down willingly. Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth and he went directly from, from, from Bethlehem to Calvary. That was his mission. Luke 19.10 says he came to seek and to save that which was lost. That was the plan of God, the perfect plan of God. Isn't it great that God doesn't make you and I try to guess what his plan is for us to be forgiven by God? He says, Chuck, this is the plan that I love the world and I sent my son into the world that he who believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. His resurrection was prophesied by God. Jesus himself told his disciples often, hey, I'm going into Jerusalem, they're going to kill me, but don't worry about it. Three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead and meet me in Galilee afterwards. Everything God laid out ahead of time, his ascension into heaven was predicted by God. His ascension, as they watched him ascend into heaven and he's exalted and he's seated at the right hand of God, the Bible says that he would be ascended into heaven. Everything that God did, he told them ahead of time so that they could believe in his word and trust in him and the reliability of what he has to say. How am I sure that if I do what God says to do, that he's reliable and trustworthy, that the day that I die, that I'm really forgiven and I'll go to heaven? Because the word of God is trustworthy and God is reliable. And everything he says comes to fruition. And the last thing that, that he said, and I want you to notice this because this is what leads us to verse 37. Look at verse 36. He says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, speaking of Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. Lord and Christ. The same word, kyrios, is used four different times in Acts and in Philippians 2.9. It's a word that is used of God himself. What he's saying to them is this. This Jesus, this man, that you claim to be only a man, this Jesus, God has made him both Lord and Christ. John 8:58, Jesus speaking to the religious leaders, and he said to them, even before Abraham existed, I am. He claimed to be Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament the God of the Exodus, book of Exodus and Genesis and all the Old Testament scripture. And the religious leaders knew what he was saying because they were so angry and enraged that he would claim to be equal with God that they took rocks and they were going to stone him and kill him. But the Bible says it was not his time because he had come to be crucified, not stoned to death. And they were enraged with him because he claimed to be God. He made himself equal with God. And that was the charge that they had against him. And that's why they were so angry. They turned him to the Roman soldiers for execution on a cross. And what he was saying to them is, this Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He is God. And you killed him. 
And the Bible says that when they heard that word, when they heard that, that they were pierced to their hearts. They were pierced to their hearts. The word pierced means to pierce or to stab suddenly and unexpectedly. It's like, man, all of a sudden a light came on. I speak to people on a regular basis who come, and some of you have come for months, some of you have come for years, and I have people coming to me on a regular basis. And you know what's the most fascinating thing? I hear people say, a woman said this two weeks ago to me, today is the day. I said, today is the day what? Today is the day that God finally melted away my hard heart. How long have you been coming? A little over a year. God slowly chipped away the hardness of a person's heart so that they could hear the truth and they could respond accordingly. They were pierced to their heart. Suddenly, as if a light came on, they realized they were the ones who killed the Messiah. Their Savior they had been waiting for, they were the ones who killed Him. And the Bible says this, and so did you, and so did me. It was my sin that sent Jesus Christ to the cross. It was your sin that sent Jesus Christ to the cross. And it was the sin of the Jews who turned him over to the Romans to be executed upon a cross. The world is culpable for the murder of Jesus Christ. You and I sent an innocent God to the cross to die in our place. It was the predetermined plan of God to reconcile us to himself. But it was our sin that caused that to happen. You are guilty and I am guilty of sending Jesus to the cross. See, and when the Holy Spirit of God, as the Word of God goes out, He pierces our heart. And when I understood that and He pierced my heart and said, Chuck, you're guilty. You sent Jesus to the cross. And here's what they said as a result. What must we do? What must I do to be saved? Now the the question will mean something to you if you've never understood it before. And the question is this. What must I do to be saved from what? Look with me at Acts chapter 2. And I want you to see something. Acts chapter 2, verse 34. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Save from what? Save from the wrath of God that will be poured out upon God's enemies. I want you to ask yourself a simple question. If what God is saying is true about you and about me and that you and I killed God's Son... What greater enemy is there in the world than that? He will make his enemies a footstool under his feet. There is a day that is coming when Jesus Christ will judge the living and the dead. And God says that he will make his enemies a footstool under his feet. And that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess these Lord to the glory of God. And every wrong will be made right. 
and every evil deed will be avenged. And I don't know about you, but if I really believe that I killed Jesus Christ with my sin, God's beloved Son, then there's no question in my mind that I'm one of the greatest enemies of God. What must I do to be saved from the judgment and the wrath that is coming from God? The answer is very clear. And it's an answer that we all need to hear. They were challenged to repent. They were challenged to repent. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? It says, Peter said to them, Repent. Repent. It's a word that means to turn around or to change your mind or to change your heart. In 1 Thessalonians, it has to do with turning from sin and turning to God. That's a word that has to do with if you're going one direction and you're in rebellion against God, and every one of us are born into the world walking away from God. The word repent very simply means this, that we will stop in our tracks. We're pierced to our heart. We know that we're guilty before God. And the Bible says that we are to turn from sin and we're to turn to God and we're to fall upon His mercy. To repent. To turn from sin and to turn back to God, our rightful place in creation. To repent from what we have done. To repent and have a genuine change of heart and a change of mind. The question is, what do we have a change of mind from? What are we to change our mind about? Or what should we now think differently about? First of all, we're to think differently about, you know, from believing that we're without sin. There are many that think, hey, I'm not a sinner. I'm not guilty. I've done nothing wrong. God said, you better change your mind about that because none are righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you are guilty of putting Jesus Christ on the cross. Change your mind about that. You're also to change your mind about the fact you believe following your rules will somehow make you right with God. It won't make you right with God at all. You're to change your mind about the fact that living a self-defined good life is good enough to get you into heaven because that's not going to do it either. You're to change your mind about the fact that, you know, if, oh, you belong to a church or you attend church, that's not going to get you there either. You're to change your mind about the fact that God must forgive everybody whether we repent or not. That's not true either. You're to turn your, change your mind about religious ritual that somehow if you think that if, if you're baptized or if you're confirmed or if you accept some sacrament or if you, you know, have communion or whatever, that that's what covers your bases. You're to change your mind about that because that's not right either. You're to change your mind about the true identity of Jesus Christ. If you think he's just a religious leader, if you think he's a good guy, if you think he's some perfect human being or just any of the other options that are out there in the world that he's an angel or that he's a spirit child or all the nonsense that's out there, if, you're, if you believe any of that, you're to change your mind about that and you're to believe what? That he is the Son of God. Period. Kyrios, both Lord and Christ. He is God in human flesh. He is the Savior of the world. The Bible says that we are to repent. Also says that we are to be baptized. And the idea of baptism that we need to explain is that the whole idea of baptism is a public break, in this particular case with his listeners, from Judaism. It's a public confession or profession of faith that I've changed my mind as to the identity of Jesus Christ. Put yourself in their position. They thought he was just a man claiming to be God. 
They would make a public confession of faith or profession that, you know what? I changed my mind. He is not just a man who claimed to be God. He is Messiah. He is the Savior of the world. He is the one that God has promised. And we made a huge mistake when we turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be executed. And we are guilty of that. And we cry out for mercy from, from God and we repent. We turn from that idea that we had. We turn from the idea that being circumcised is enough to find forgiveness. And we turn to the idea that only faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone is where we will find forgiveness from God. See, they understood that. And a public acclamation of, of faith, baptism, was a public calling. When they were baptized in those days, man, they marched out in public and they went down to the river and they identified themselves with Jesus Christ. What we do in churches today is we hide in a church sometimes, most of the time, in a sanctuary, and we do it among believers. And to me, I think sometimes that we lose the whole impact or effect that it has. That's why when we do a baptism, when we did it at the beach, I love it. you got the public that's out there, they're going, what's going on? Come on over, we'll tell you what's going on. These people here have realized that they are a sinner, that they sent Jesus Christ to the cross to die in their place for sin. And they want to publicly acknowledge that they have put their faith and trust in Him. That they believe that He died in their place. They believe He rose again from the dead. They believe He's alive today and He has the power to give eternal life and forgiveness from God. And they have put their faith and trust in Him. And as, a, as an act of obedience, a public declaration... I want people to know that I have put my trust and faith in Jesus Christ and I'm no secret service Christian. You know, what's amazing to me is that we make it so easy for people that oftentimes I don't believe that the majority of people who say they come to faith in Christ actually ever do. Jesus said, you count the cost because if you're going to follow me, your mother's going to hate you, your father's going to hate you, your brother's going to hate you, your, your business partners are going to hate you, uh, you're going to lose your business, you may lose your home, you may lose everything that this world has to offer, but you know what, in comparison, i got eternity to give you. None of them can offer you eternal life. What would a man exchange for his soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but to lose his soul? Or what would a man exchange for his soul? Jesus called people out and said, you know what, if you're going to follow me, you better consider the cost and count the cost because there's a price that you will pay. But I'll tell you what it did. It weeded out all the people that were just along for the feel-good ride because they knew that, you know what, there was a price to pay. But it's nothing in comparison to the price that Jesus paid for my forgiveness on the cross. That's why the Apostle Paul argued so vehemently in 1 Corinthians 6. He goes, don't you realize that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? That you've been bought with a price? Do you realize what Jesus did in your place when He died on the cross? How is it that you can live in disobedience? The price that He paid compared to the price that you're paying of what? Of, of not succumbing to temptation? Not even compared. It's like, what's wrong with you people? What's wrong with us sometimes? It's like, do we realize what He did in our behalf to free us from sin? And yet we just choose to enter into it casually as if we don't have any understanding at all the price that he paid. I challenge people all the time and I'll challenge you to think about this. The next time you who have come to faith in Christ and you only, because I don't want to confuse the rest of you, that you are tempted to sin, I want you to picture yourself and place yourself at the foot of the cross. And I want you to look up and I want you to look in the face of Jesus. And I want you to see that crown of thorns on his head. I want you to see the blood running down. I want you to see the nails in his, in his wrists and in his feet. And the beating that he took that his face was beaten beyond recognition. And the scourging that he took. And the piercing of the sword in his side. And I want you to stand at the foot of the cross and then I want you to commit that act of sexual immorality. Then I want you to commit that act of drunkenness and anger and rage. Or lying and cheating and stealing. 
or rebelling against your parents or whatever it is. I want you to look at what Jesus paid to free you from that and tell me you can just casually do that. Do we recognize and understand the price that He paid to free us from sin? It says to be baptized. And now the confusion is to be baptized and it says for the forgiveness of sin. And here's where people get confused. And I'll make this very simple. The preposition for can mean two things. It can mean for the purpose of forgiveness or it can mean because of or on the occasion of. That's what it means here. I'll give you an example. In Matthew 12, 41, it says the people of Nineveh repented because of the preaching of Jonah. The preposition is used there for the preaching of Jonah. Why did the people of Nineveh repent? For the preaching of Jonah. Why are we to be baptized? Not to cause the forgiveness of sin, but because our sins have already been forgiven. And we'll go into great detail more in an upcoming message in Acts 8 because I want to clarify the fact that baptism does not baptism in water does not bring about salvation of sin from, from God's wrath. Okay? We need to know that and understand that because people believe that. And, and the clearest and simplest argument, if you want to read and look at today uh, sometime when you want to, in Luke 23, 39 through 43, one of the clearest arguments that you don't have to be baptized in order to be forgiven by God and, and, and in order to go to heaven after your death. And that's the thief on the cross. I mean, you can't get a clearer argument than that from Scripture. It doesn't get any clearer than that. And I believe that that's exactly why it's there to make sure that we don't get confused as to what forgiveness is based upon. Forgiveness is based upon believing in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for the forgiveness of our sins, period. We are baptized afterwards as an affirmation of an internal decision to follow Jesus Christ. It's an act of obedience. It should happen as quickly as possible after we've come to faith, but we want to declare publicly what has taken place in our heart. But the thief on the cross, I mean, is very obvious. I mean, you talk about a great conversion story. There's two thieves, Jesus, in the middle. The one thief is, is yelling at Jesus, hey, why don't you save yourself and save us too? If you're really the son of God and you're, you're everything you claim to be, why don't you get yourself off that cross and get us down too? The other thief to the other side said, looked over and said, man, what is wrong with you? Do you not fear God? For we are getting what we deserve. But this man has done no wrong. And he looked at Jesus and he said, Remember me when you enter into your kingdom. You talk about an act of faith. This man recognized he was a sinner. We are getting what we deserve. He has done nothing wrong. Do you not fear God, recognizing Jesus Christ to be who he claimed to be? That act of faith at that moment is just tremendous to me. It's incredible to me. He's watching Jesus die next to him, but he still puts his faith and trust in him for the forgiveness of his sin. And Jesus' answer to him clarifies any doubt. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Only if you get off the cross and get baptized. Only if you can get to church. Only if you can give up certain things. Only if you can get, you know, member, become a member somewhere real fast. Hey, man, you know what? It doesn't get any simpler than that. Today, you will be with me in paradise. He recognized he was a sinner. He responded with faith to Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of his sins. And the Bible says, and that's exactly what happens, that we are forgiven. We are forgiven, past, present, 
future. This is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. And I want you to understand it. You hear what he said? This is the blood of my covenant which is poured out for many for forgiveness of sins. Not for all, because not all will respond. But for those who do, the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to give us forgiveness before God for those who believe. Repentance for forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Paul wrote, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Little children, your sins are forgiven you for His name's sake. Our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, when we come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's a gift from God so that no one can boast. And the gift from God is also the gift of the Holy Spirit in the life of those who come to faith in Jesus Christ. The Bible says that you will receive the gift from God, the gift of the promise of God. You receive the Holy Spirit, the gift of God, in verse 38. For the promise is for your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call to Himself. The truth of God's sovereignty and calling and the responsibility of man in receiving. Both are taught very clearly in Scripture. And how do we know that those who received this message, who recognized that they were sinners, who responded with faith to the finished work of Christ, changed their mind as to His identity, came to faith in Him, how do we know that that's all that needs to be done in order to be forgiven by God? Notice in verse 41. It says, They were counted among the believers. So then those who had received His word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. They received His Word. Really, if you think about it, there's only two choices to the message that we hear. The message that you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, that we're condemned before God, that we're judged and ultimately we're hell-bound. If something doesn't drastically happen in our life to intercede from that inevitability... There's two responses. One is that we receive his message, and two is that we reject it. You'll notice that those who had received his word were added and counted among the believers, 3,000. But if you read the text, as we did, you'll know that there were multitudes of people who were listening at the time. Not every one of them responded in a positive way. It says that he continued to exhort them and encourage them in verse 40. He kept on exhorting them, testifying before them. It was as if we would open this up at this point. Do you have any questions? Is there anything that I can do to help you to understand more clearly what it is that God wants you to know? And he continued to exhort them, continued to testify before them. It would be fascinating to think about that just from the standpoint of like, oh, i got to stop now. We've we got to quit. But just to be with a person who just says, but I've but I got some more questions. And, and just to continue to exhort and to encourage. And it just wasn't Peter, it was all of the apostles went out in the crowd and they were answering questions that anybody would have. What else do you need to know in order for you to come to faith in Jesus Christ? What else is it that's holding you back? What other questions do you have? What other evidence do you need? They either received them or they rejected Him. And if they received Him, they were added to the body of believers. John 1.12 says, For as many as received Jesus Christ, to them He gave the power to become children of God, to those who believe in His name. Or they remain 
And when I say they remain, they remain in the category of humanity that is hell-bound. And if you don't believe that, turn with me to John chapter 3, and we'll close with this. John chapter 3. Passage that many of us are familiar with, but all too often we stop. At verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world should be saved through Him. For he who believes in Him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. The world stands condemned and guilty as charged. The only way you and I can avoid the inevitable fate of being separated from God from all of eternity in a place of anguish and torture, in a place called hell, is that we repent, we change our minds, we change our hearts as to the identity of Jesus Christ, as to our own culpability, our own sin nature. Lord, I am guilty as charged, and I throw myself upon your mercy. I believe what you say, that Jesus Christ has come into the world to die on the cross in my place. I believe that I can trust him because three days later he rose from the dead. And he has ascended into heaven. He's exalted Lord. He is Lord in Christ. And I can believe you and trust you because your word is true. And I believe what you say, that the moment that I trust in Jesus Christ and believe in him for the forgiveness of my sins, that I have eternal life. And that I too and counted among the believers. Father, we just pray today that your word, as you promised, will not go out fruitless, but it will accomplish the purposes for which you sent it forth. God, I am just I'm troubled, and I just pray that those who hear your word, that they'll receive it as you intended it, that they'll see their own guilt, they'll see their culpability in sending Jesus to the cross. They'll see there's no greater enemy in the world than one who killed your son. God, save us from the ultimate judgment and the wrath of God that will come because of that. Lord, I just pray that for those who aren't certain of their relationship with you, that they could resolve it once and for all. And I also pray for those of us who have come to faith in you that will never take for granted the truth of your word as a means of sharing with people around us who have bought into the lies that are out there somehow believing that you'll just forgive everybody and give everybody a free ride and that your word isn't valid or that you're not reliable in the things that you say. And to warn them of the danger and to warn them of the upcoming judgment of God. God, I just pray that we would all soften our hearts and turn to you, that we'll repent from sin and turn back to you. I just pray for those who aren't sure that they pray a simple prayer, God, forgive me for I am a sinner. And I believe what your word says, that you sent Jesus to die in my place. I believe that he's trustworthy. I believe that I can trust him because he demonstrates that he's trustworthy and that he's reliable in the fact that he rose from the dead. He is alive today and that he can offer eternal life. And God, I receive him as my Lord and my Savior. 
And I just thank you for the Spirit of God, which you give me at that moment, that testifies with my spirit that I'm a child of God, the assurance that I have in my own heart that I've now become a child of God. And God, I just pray that I will live a life that's a life of obedience and walk in newness of life. Even though I understand that there may be a cost to be paid for the faith that I profess, I trust in you because no one can offer you what, no one can offer me what you only can, and that is eternal life and forgiveness. And Lord, we just praise you and we just thank you and we just worship you for the wonderful God that you are and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.